Welcome back to the Booker Life Group podcast. We meet on Sunday mornings at 11 at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. This is the second message in a series on 1 John. Last week, we heard from Richard Booker about 1 John chapter 1. This week, we're going to hear from John Green as we dive deep into chapter 2. Anyways, we're all friends here, so I encourage discussion and uh, any insights that you guys might have, because it's like Richard was saying just a minute ago that it, all this text has one meaning, but it has multiple applications. So you may have read through this this week and, uh, and saw something there that, that I didn't, or, or maybe something that was you know applicable to your life this week. But um, yeah, I do appreciate you all being here today. And the, this text, of course, we're reading through First John chapter uh, 2 this week, and of course next week we'll be going through chapter 3. The following week is the, the marriage conference he was talking about, so we won't meet that week, May 22nd, and then the 29th we'll pick up with chapter 4. And so we'll continue through that. Um, so last week Richard did a, a great job of laying out chapter 1, what that meant as far as uh, just the, kind of the text of, of being about discipleship and, and what a Christian should believe and act like. And it's, it's continued here in chapter 2. And where we talked about, like I said, in chapter 1, about the discipleship in the sense of fellowship and relationship we share with the Father. And then it ends, of course, with them saying that He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we go into chapter 2, and really in, in the book of John here, it gives us four reasons that he specifically writes out. And he says that this is why I'm writing this. And one is in chapter 1, where he talks about adding to our joy. And then there's two meanings he has or purposes he has here for chapter 2 and it's to guard against sin which is in chapter 2 verses 1 and then to warn us of false teachers or those who are, want to deceive us in, in verses 2 26 he specifically come out, comes out and says this his purpose and then in chapter 5 he talks about it's to strengthen our faith and assure us of eternal life and so he get, comes right out I love that about John he just he says it very plainly. This is why I'm telling you this. And like that speaks to me. Because I'm like, oh, I got it. I got it. Exactly what you told me. So there's one of the things that I also want to kind of back up. And, and Richard laid out who John was a little bit. And I'm not going to go into a long discussion of who John was. We know, like Richard said, that he uh, wrote John. He wrote these testaments, the epistles here, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and, and Revelation. But within that, if you go back to... Acts chapter 4, verse 13, there's a point there where Peter and John are there and they're being questioned by some, some religious leaders. And there's one point where Peter steps up and he starts to speak. And then at one point they come to the realization, they said in, in Acts four thirteen. now when they saw the boldness, the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. And they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And then if you just go further down into verse 20 there, it says, For we cannot but speak the things which we love, uh, which we have seen and heard. So they're speak he's speaking that. So when he's writing these epistles in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he's speaking and teaching us what he's seen and what he's heard. And so just to kind of dive right in, uh, Richard, would you read uh, verses 1 and 2 for us? My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So there's some of the few words that we're going to see here in, just like last week. John does a, I don't know if it's a good job or if he intends to, but we all have a pattern of how we write and how we say things. And he repeats certain things a lot. And there's certain words you'll see in here multiple times. There's one word, no. You'll see it. It's over a dozen times it's in this chapter. No or known. Uh, you'll also see abide or abides. That's in here over a dozen times. But then there's a couple times you'll see the word righteous. And you see it in the first, in the first uh, verse of this chapter. And you also see it in the end. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, I think that's important to see that... When he talks about us having an advocate with the Father, it's it's the one who he's talking about is Jesus. And he doesn't just say Jesus Christ. He says Jesus Christ the righteous. And there's something about that because we can't in ourselves be righteous, but through him we can. And we, and we see that, and again, we'll come back to the last chapter of this text later on. Um, but then in, in verse 2, he goes on and he says, 
that he's the perpetuation for our, our sin. And, uh, you know, perpetuation means, I always thought of it as, as sacrifice. And it, and it can mean sacrifice, but it's also the act of appeasing to make less angry by giving something, an atoning sacrifice. And that's really what Christ has done for us. Because uh, we look at it as... Uh, I don't know, I just think, oh, Christ died on the cross for me, great, he gives me salvation. But it is really more than that. It's because God is, he gave us his law, he's just, and then we break his law. There has to be something, you know, to come in place of that. The perpetuation in this case is Jesus Christ. And again, going back to his righteousness, we can only have that through him. Is there anything that you guys saw in this text that these first couple of verses here that really speak to you? Well, I think that, uh, that word perpetuation is... It's a big word. It's one of these churchy words that we like to use a lot. Uh, but this particular word, and if, if we um, look at it in the full sense of, of Scripture, so Romans 6.23 says what? Romans what? Romans 6.23 says what? So the wages of sin is death. What we earn. All right, so you know, what you, for... When, when sin occurs, death has to take place. In the Old Testament, you had a substitution, or the propitiation for sin was personal sacrifice. So you would uh, lay a lamb down. And actually, we, we think of it as, oh, we gave our lamb to the, the priest, and the priest would kill it, sacrifice, whatever. No, you yourself had to kill the lamb. Because I mean, that was you. Fed and you had spent time. Yeah, you, you were the one that offered that sacrifice. All right, so in the New Testament, for the wages of sin is death, uh, you know, Christ gave himself as, a, as an appeasement or a propitiation of that, uh, of sin on our behalf, so that we ourselves no longer had to offer a sacrifice or no longer had to offer ourselves as a sacrifice. And so when you look at the sacrifice now is a living sacrifice in Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're, we're to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice because Jesus himself died for us and paid the actual punishment of death. So, I mean, that, that word in, in and of itself, even though it's a difficult word, it's, it's a central aspect of Scripture itself to say without this word, the propitiation that God gave, that God gave his son Jesus Christ as the appeasement, I mean, the whole idea of the New Testament of salvation falls apart. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I think that if you look back in the verse prior, he says that we have an advocate. I mean, that's a proper noun. That's the Paracletos. That's the Holy Spirit that uh, helps us uh, in, in, in our righteousness because he himself has filled us. Because we have offered ourselves as a living sacrifice, Jesus Christ paid, paid the penalty, and we are now filled with the Holy Spirit. He is the one within us that makes us righteous. And it's not by anything that we do, because we look at other places in Scripture where it says, the, the righteousness that I have is as filthy rags. And so it's the Holy Spirit that apparently to us. So it's the advocate, not Jesus Christ? No, it's, the, it's, it's specifically the apparently That's good. Now, if you go down into to verse 2, he also talks about, he says, talks about Christ being the perpetuation for sins, but he also gets into it and he says, but also for the whole world. I, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I don't would say I'm necessarily shy, but I'm not necessarily outgoing with a lot of folks, particularly when I don't know you. And so when at work, I hear sometimes people, I say work because that's where I spend a lot of time, of course, but I hear people say things where they have problems, and I'm just like, man, you know, Christ could fix that. But I'm just a little bit nervous about going up just saying, hey, you know, this is what you need. And... But he's, he's saying here, you know, this is not just for us. Just, you know, we're not just some saved sect over here where we stay amongst ourselves. This is something that, in the commandments of Jesus, he tells us in Matthew uh, chapter 28 to go tell the whole world. And so, I don't know about you guys, but that was kind of convicting to me. There, he's saying it's not for ours only, but also for the whole world, for us to go out there and tell this. And, um,. I know in our culture today, it's not always easy to, because I, where I work, I work for the federal government, so I worry about getting in trouble for saying some stuff too much, because the, I've seen it several times where a guy, you, you've befriended them, but you say one thing, and all of a sudden, they're going to somebody to tattle on you, and uh, it's, it's, it's real out there, but at the same time, <laughs> 
But at the same time, he, he wants us to be in all sects of life, whether it's working in government, anywhere in the private sector. And this gospel we share is not just where we share at church, but we share it out here in our everyday lives and what we do and everywhere that we go, and even with uh, you know our children. And, and it's not always what we tell them, but it's also what we do and what they see from us. But going on to uh, verses 3-6, would anybody mind reading that? 3 through 6? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In this, this chapter, he kind of gives some tests there. I mean, it wouldn't necessarily, he doesn't describe it as that, but there's really kind of a test of knowing Christ. And I, I kind of drew up just a diagram for my own purposes of a different verses. And I put on one side, I said, you know, it, you are in God, you're in the light if you're doing this. And then on the other side, I put, you know, you're either the Antichrist or in darkness if you're doing this. And when you look at verse 3, he specifically says, if you keep his commandments, you know him. All right, and we see that word no, like I said, it's in there multiple times. It's over a dozen times through here. So he talks later about us, you know, how we can know, but he gives us some examples there, some tests, if you will, to, to say if we keep his commandments, we're in the light. We know God. We're, you know, we're not in darkness. And then you see it, you know, carried on in verse 4. He says, I know him, does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Um, and we, we've seen that a lot of many people who profess to know Christ, but it's their evidence in what they do and what they say that they don't. Now, I don't know that it's always for me to judge uh, in every case, but when you spend enough time with a person, you know, I can come up here today and I can say this and I can proclaim all this and you can say, oh, he's a Christian, but if you watch me in my everyday life and you know, see me know me over and over, it's there where you're going to see what I really believe bore out, you know. Am I doing the commandments that he talks about here? But the commandments that he talks about is not necessarily like the Ten Commandments. It says His Commandments. Now, granted, we, we know that Jesus is the Word, like it says in John 1, 1, and we know that all the commandments of the Word are really His, but specifically, there's about 50 commandments that we see throughout the New Testament that Jesus gave. And I'm not going to go through all those, but I did uh, somewhere I got a printout of several of those. But some of the things that he's commanding us. So, so when you think commandments, I don't want you to think necessarily the Ten Commandments. Well, yes, it kind of encompasses those. It's really more than that, the, the things that he tells us specifically to do. Now, I don't think he lists them out here because he didn't want us to be legalistic and say, are you doing this one, this one, and this one? But I, I think there's maybe, uh, you know, he's trying to infer that Jesus gave a lot of commandments and that you're to be seeking those and learning those. Does anybody else see anything in these verses here that kind of spoke to you? It was really Jay Vernon that spoke to me, but I just thought it was really interesting. Um, if, if y'all ever heard uh, Jay Vernon McGee or whatever. Anyway, so he, was, he made a reference, and I've never heard it put this way, so you may agree or disagree, but he was talking about in this where um, if we keep his commandments, he was talking about how God wasn't telling us like his commandments. He was, he was talking to a family here, not to the nation. He gave the Ten Commandments to a nation. But when you're in God, in Christ, or whatever, you're part of the family. And he made a really good point to me about talking about how you deal with your children, deal with your family, you deal with them differently, or whatever. And you, um, you're, you instruct them differently, you talk to them differently. But, but with those commandments, kind of like you, he referenced them as well, just kind of briefly. But I just thought that was really interesting because I had always thought that meant just the ten. I don't know if anybody else did always read it that way, but I just thought it was interesting about, I guess I never thought about being in the family who have different rules than the, the nation in general that may not be, you know, like, you know, Christian. All right. Anybody else say anything there? Uh, if you don't know that... The way, like I said, John has a pattern of his writing, and he, he does repeat himself, and I think that's on purpose and for emphasis a lot of times. But you also got to understand a lot of these texts were not written until years later. We're talking about the Gospels and things, and some of these texts um, were written sometime after Jesus. So some of these things that he's remembering, those were in his heart because he couldn't have reproduced these 20 years later or you know, tell the story as specifically as he could without the help of God, in my opinion, or 
or with the, the having that knowledge in his heart. And John chapter 15, if you, if you go back there for specifically, uh, verses 12 and 17 kind of reference the same verses here that you see in verses 3 through 6. Verse 12 says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then in John 15, 17, it says, These things I command you that you love one another. So these are just, that's just a couple of commandments that Jesus gave there. But I think this is, you know, if you follow on the, the following verses here, he's kind of referencing that or, or going back to, to saying similar things there. Um, but yeah, I like, also John 15, 5, John 15, 7. These are all references that you could go back to, and they, they really parallel this chapter in a lot of ways. Um, all right, so let's go on to verses 7 through 11. Anybody read that for me? Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one. Which one have you had since the beginning? This old command is not new. Rather, it's been given to you by God. The one you have heard from the beginning. It's true the seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light has already shined. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. Uh, he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. That's right. Here in this these, these few verses, I say that we see a commandment to love, and then and kind of another test there again to say if you're doing this, then you're in the light. If you're not doing this, you're in the darkness. But there's also, it kind of goes back and references John 13, 34, which says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Those are Jesus' words. So when he's referencing some of this, he's telling us basically what Jesus said there. Um, I, mean, it's, it's, I don't think it's very hard to understand that, you know, if you say they're in the light and you hate your brother, you're in darkness till now. And uh, Sandy was talking about Jay Verde. I heard him say, you know, when we think of hating your brother, it's not necessarily, it doesn't mean that you have to like everything about everyone, but it does say that you have a, a genuine love for people. You know, that's part of our mission statement here at church is love God, love people, share Jesus, make disciples. And he, uh, he was talking about a, a college roommate he had. He said he was a Christian, but he was one of the most disdainful people you'd ever meet. And uh, he said, I told him one day, I don't like you, whatever. And he said, well, I don't like you either. And he said, well, he's a man of God preaching the word. And, and, and Jay Vernon, of course, was doing the same. But he was saying, you know, this love is not just like necessarily liking everything that Richard does or that Nathan does or whatever. But it does mean that you have this love for one another. You, got, you look like you have something. Well, now, when it comes to... Um John the Gospel, uh, you see, I mean, you just really see uh, what it means to come into the light in, in the Gospel, and here in, in 1 John, what it means to live in the light. Because uh, what you see in the Gospels is uh, Jesus taking this original commandment that was given in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, and that had been taken so legalistically. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, said, I didn't come to destroy the law, you know, but to perfect it. And so he kind of turns it on his head. So like this term, hatred, uh, he, you know, Jesus even talks about if you hate your brother, it's the same thing as murdering him. And we actually get into that here in the next chapter. If we were to go next week, we'll, we'll kind of talk about that. But so it's the same thing like if you committed you know, if you lust after somebody in Matthew chapter 5, you know, Jesus says you lust after adultery. So he's saying it's not about so much the act in and of itself, but where your heart is. And so when he's talking here about living in light, he's talking about where, where are you abiding? He says this word abiding several times. And if you go back to John chapter 15, you see this whole thing about abiding in me, abide in me, abide in me. John loves this term, and that term just means where where do you get your life source from? You know, so where 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 are your roots actually grounded? Well, they should be grounded in faith in Jesus Christ. And so um, here here in this section, if you're abiding in Jesus Christ, you're abiding in the light. You won't, and like you say, you know, you're gonna that hatred is not a won't be a part of who you are. You'll recognize that and you'll try to wipe, wipe that out. Yeah, and this is counter to what our, 
we naturally would want to do our natural flesh side. It's not easy to love people, uh, you know, sometimes, but I think God in us can help us to love others. Did that abide? Yeah, the definition I wrote down was to stay, to continue in a place, to have one's abode, to dwell. I mean, it's a place where you're going to be often. And so it's to me it's important that we're not just, we say this, but, it, you know, if we do it just one time, John clearly, when he says abides, he really meant abide. He was continually <coughs> visiting with God through prayer, through reading, whatever it was that he was doing there. Well, and it just, it just kind of uh, occurred to me, the, the thought of we, this, this whole chapter, we have to continue to look back to verse 1 where he says we have an advocate, we have the Holy Spirit within us, and without the Holy Spirit, none of this is possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that we forget about uh, the Christian life is that living a holy life, living according to the commandments, living within light and, and away from darkness, and, and then you're going to continue to go on. It, without the Holy Spirit, no, none of this is possible. Absolutely. I mean, Jesus himself said, it's better for you that I leave so that the paraclete might come and he says that in John chapter 14. I mean, think about that. Would you rather have Jesus Christ sitting next to you physically, or would you rather have the Holy Spirit inside of you? I think the vast majority of us would choose, we want Jesus sitting next to us. When Jesus himself says that it's the Holy Spirit that we would, that is better for us than he himself. Because the Holy Spirit can fill us and, and live through us. And well, yeah. That's good. Yeah, just thought that. That's good. All right, so let's go on to verses 12 through 14. Will anybody read those for me? I'm writing, you said through 14. Yes. I'm writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I'm writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I am writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. I have written to you who are God's children, because you know the Father. I have written to you who are mature in the faith, because you know Christ, who existed from the beginning. I have written to you who are young in the faith, because you are strong. God's word lives in your heart, and you have won your battle of the evil one. Yeah, I like the way your text puts that, because mine said fathers and children. I was like, a lot of these apply to us as Christians overall. So I was like, why is it saying children, fathers? Mine says young men as well. But it, I think it really, what your says there about maturity, when it says fathers, it's talking about uh, the spiritual maturity, someone who's older in the faith, where it's talking about young men. It's, it's saying someone who is, you know, when it says children, obviously you're in the family. You're, you already, you know, believe in God. But, you know, maybe you're the young man or the one who's a little bit more mature and it talks about some of the, the things that you've overcome there, but then the fathers. And, uh, you know, I don't know how to say this exactly, but there's a lot of times that we are immature Christians and we will say things and point people towards Christ even though our lives don't necessarily bear it out, but we'll say it. And a lot of people call that hypocritical in a way it is but uh, there is a growing process here you know we call it sanctification from you know when you get saved that first day you're you're not you're radically changed but you're not necessarily uh sanctified and that's never really perfected until you actually go to be with christ but but in that you know there's so many men in the bible we particularly look at the old testament who were fallen men just like us but yet they also were pointing people to do the right thing moses he had a lot of faults. You know, David had a lot of faults, but they were always pointing people to the right thing. So I think in this text when it says, uh, little children, your, your sins are forgiven for you for his name's sake, even though maybe just maybe a new babe in Christ, it doesn't mean that you can't point people to God and that you can continue to seek this out and learn. And the same thing, he kind of contrasts that with the next verse saying, those are mature in faith that fathers, you have known him who is from the beginning. He's talking about you've known Christ. And, and that no is not just to the one time I said a prayer, but that's a, that's a daily intake, something where you've communed with him, met with him daily, and, and built upon that. And, uh, and then, of course, it says, because you, uh, young man, because you have overcome the wicked one. Uh, does anybody else see anything in these few verses here? Zane, you got something? No. I didn't know. I was, I was thinking about, I was, uh, this, 
artist, I was listening, he wrote a book, he was talking about uh, the first thing he did when he got saved, he walked down to the altar, after he got saved, he came back, he stole a Bible from the church, <laughs> he was just saved, and, you know, he was poor, he didn't have a Bible, and he really wanted a Bible, so he stole it out of the lost and found, he was looking back on his life as his, uh, as his growth, his sanctification, saying, you know, how messed up we really are. Yeah, I think some of this text here is he's getting us to look introspectively at ourselves and go, you know, where I'm at today, if I'm following this in this thing with Christ and doing this thing, I'm really committed to this. Five years from now, I shouldn't be the same person I am today. I shouldn't be walking in this door with no more knowledge of God and no more, I'm not just talking about physical knowledge, but I'm talking about heart knowledge of God. You know, I should be coming in here learning more. And, and this, you know, what it talks about in, in Matthew 28, that Great Commission, that should mean something more to us. And honestly, for me, it does. I, I can honestly say more than, say, a year ago, it means something more. And I think part of that's because I've been more intentional about doing the discipleship groups with other guys and being held accountable. And with that, we've done some learning in there. And that learning has gotten into our hearts a little bit, too. It's something. I was thinking about like if I intimately known Kendall, you know, we've been good friends for five years. We hang out a lot. Of her. If I know absolutely nothing more about her in five years than I did when I started, how terrible that would be, and how you know how awful. I mean, like we would think like, how could you not know that you know, or how could you spend that much time with somebody and not gotten anything out of it? Mm-hmm. But as Christians, we think nothing of not spending that time with the Lord. You know, with the Lord, but we just. It's like we say that we're really walking with him or that we've known him, but we're not taking the time to really get to know. You know, It's like you're being in the room with somebody, but you're on opposite ends, and you're not listening to the conversation because he's trying to talk to us. Absolutely. You have to be intentional about it because I know, like you said, being in the same room is not going to communicate that knowledge. And You know, you can have brushes with God in a sense of coming to, to, to worship but never really worshiping or, or getting to know him. Um, but let's go on to verses 15 through 17. I'll, I'll just read these if that's all right. In my text it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides, abides, abides forever. There's that abides word again. Uh, in these texts... Obviously, he's saying do not love the world, but of course, that's not the the earthly atmosphere we out we see out here. That's talking about the, the things within the world, uh, you know. And, and really, sixteen kind of goes on to describe some of that. I've heard Pastor Steve during one of the Man of Memphis conferences. He or one of his things, he talked about this verse specifically. And he really broke it down into the three types of sin: lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And uh, Matthew Henry, he kind of describes it. This is. A little difficult to read, but I'll just read it to you guys. It says, The things of the world are classed according to three three ruling inclinations of depraved nature. One, the lust of the flesh, of the body, the, which is the wrong desires of the heart, the appetite of indulging all the things that incite, excite and inflame sensual pleasures. And then two, the lust of the eyes. The eyes are delighted with riches and rich possessions. This is the lust of covetousness. And number three, the pride of life, a vain man craves the grandeur and pomp of a vainglorious life. This includes thirst after honor and applause. And that's just one description. I'm sure there's more things that you could encompass in what that verse 16 says. But I thought Matthew Henry there gave a, a pretty good description of what's within the text there, uh, of what that means. And so, really, he's just covering all sin and... Uh, you see that when you see that verse there, so the pride of life, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, the pride of life. That's kind of what it's saying there in that text. And then of course, verse seventeen uh, talks about the world passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. He's talking about. He gives us in this chapter. He's giving us kind of some some knowledge, some test. In there, but then he's also giving us encouragement. In the latter part of this chapter, they really get that encouragement of eternal life. And there's a part in the in the New Testament where Paul's writing, and he says, "You know, if Christ is not risen from the dead, I'm the most miserable of all men." 
And why would he say that? I think he's saying that because there are some things that, you know, where Christ says the world's hating me, and if he hates, hates me, it's going to, you know, you're going to have challenges too. And so Paul is in, has endured so many things. You read what he's endured. And then here in John, First uh, John chapter 2, 17, when he says that, you know, he who does the will of God abides forever. That's, that's the encouragement there. This is like, like, you know, what we may endure here, is only temporary, and in that the temporary, we also get, you know, uh, an eternity with God. That's one of the good things there. Anybody have anything else to say about? Well, this is just to just to show another parallel of other writers. James in James four four, James the brother of Jesus writes, "You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility?" The same use of the word world, the cosmos. Is, the, is hostility towards God, therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I mean, so there's just that other parallel of, um, you know, of, of our relationship, what our relationship with the world uh, should be, and then, uh, you know, the will of God lives forever. You know, you talked about it in First Thessalonians 4, 3, you know, the will of God is what? Our sanctification, which is becoming more like Christ. I think that uh, we too often just, just we desire what the world wants. Absolutely. Just, Part of that's natural, right? Yeah. I mean, you just I mean, you don't you don't have to wake up every morning to be sinful. I mean, you know, to and decide I'm going to be sinful today. It's just pretty, it's pretty easy, right? You know, you heard that say that that the guy was talking about. He's praying to God and said, God, I haven't done this today, and I haven't done this, and I haven't done this sin or anything like this. And he said, But in a minute, I'm about to get out of bed. I'm going to need your help, you know. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's, that's me. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but uh, loving the world is not hard, but it's, it's loving God that, that can be more difficult. But I think through that sanctification process, it becomes easier to, to shed some of those things, that those desires that we might have for those. Tim, can you read uh, 18 through 23? Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Yeah, absolutely. Here we have another test. Another where we're going to weigh it out here. And uh, you can kind of, if you wanted to draw it out again, you could say... Uh, you know, on one side, this is in God, in the light. And, and if you go to verse 23, it's talking about acknowledging the Son of God. But in verse 22, you're in darkness, you're Antichrist, if you deny Jesus is the Christ, and then you deny the Father and the Son. So there's just some things, like I said, there's more tests there. But if you go to, to verse 18, it talks about last times. And every time I see last times in the New Testament, it just kind of always makes me think. I was like, man, that was 2,000 years ago. and But he's saying last times then. And from what I've read of various people, some thought it was the the last times when they said that could mean the duration of the Jewish church. But I think later the more accurate interpretation is that's the beginning of an age or a time. And where he's saying in this time, he says the last time, but in this time, these are when you'll see Antichrist. And, when, and he's kind of, after that, he follows it up with what you'll see is an Antichrist. But in 19... There, he says, you know, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. That implies they might have started out right here with us. Right. You know, they might have learned some heresy or something from, uh, you know, I, hey, I don't know about you guys, but here in the last week or last two weeks, I've learned a couple of verses for years. I thought one way what it said, but when I read the whole context of what it said in the whole chapter, the whole book, I'm going, yeah, what I thought was not right at all, all right? I think sometimes if you hinge just on a few verses and text, you can go out here and say all kinds of things uh, that are inaccurate that aren't really what the text says. And even if you get into some commentary, I used to have a pastor that would say, you know, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. 
Because ultimately, when you get outside of that, you're going with what other men think of the text, which is not wrong for them to write about that or to read that, but also, but he's saying within that reference the text in itself. And I think when we talked about like the parallels between First John and, and John chapter 15 and 13, I think you said 14 as well, uh, you kind of get a better understanding of what he's saying there. Does anybody have thoughts on that? Okay. Um, in 20 and 21, if you know the truth, you know him. If you've got those words, know again. He says, but if you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things, uh, and then 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, that no lie is of the truth. If you go to John 15, 26 and 27, he references this. It says, but when the Helper comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Those are those are Jesus' words that, that John wrote down there. So when he's referencing here in 20 and 21 that you know the truth, well, like Richard was saying earlier, the God helps us to know his truth when he gives us that Holy Spirit there that helps us. I think it's why it calls him the helper there. And then, of course, verse 22 defines the Antichrist. Uh, it's one who denies the Father and the Son. And I've seen this. There was a... A guy, this was years ago when I was in basic training. I was down at, or not basic training, I was at uh, medic, medic training, combat medic training down at Fort Sam Houston, Texas. And I thought about it, he was a brilliant guy, very smart, but he was always telling me he was Lutheran. And for a period of time, we didn't get to go to chapel services, so we were kind of starved there. And anyways, they allowed us to go off base to these other chapels at a certain point in time. And I didn't really know where his faith was, but I didn't think he was tracking, and maybe he thought the same of me, but he said he was Lutheran, and I was like, okay. I said, why don't you go to church with me one Sunday, and I'll go with you. So I agreed to go with him first. We went to a Lutheran church, and the, and the pastor preached a sermon that would kind of go along with the beliefs that I had as well, but I got to asking him after we went, and it turns out this guy didn't even believe in Jesus Christ being the Son of God. And I was like, man, what do you think Christmas is about? What do you think Easter is about? And he's like, I don't know. I just can't accept this. I can't accept this God incarnate, this, this God being, uh, you know, coming to earth as man but still being God. He said, I couldn't accept that. And so I was like, man, you're not a Christian if you say that. You've been a Lutheran, you know, as far as what you claim to be, but you've not really been a Christian during that time. And he, and for a while I thought maybe I drove him in the wrong direction because after that, he got the, an English version of the Quran, and then the Quran it specifically says that Jesus was not the Christ; he was a prophet, right? That's what it says in there. And he was like, "See, this is what I believe right here." And so I was like, "Man, I'm just taking this guy from one direction to another." But honestly, I don't know that I heard him because when you read this text, you're like, he thought he was okay with accepting the Father, accepting a Godhead, but he wasn't willing to accept the Christ. And by virtue of what this says in this text, he was basically his beliefs. He would have, if he was telling them to others, he was an antichrist, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping, I haven't talked to him in years, so I'm hoping at some point in time he came full circle on that and maybe came back to God. I, I don't know. But at the same time, I thought it was better maybe that he didn't think he was a Christian than for him to assume he was and die and go to hell, thinking that. You know. uh, but in verse 23 we have another test. He who doesn't accept the Son doesn't have the Father, and who accepts the Son also has the Father. We can measure other religions, other denominations, other Christians, other proclaiming Christians against what this says. All these texts in here that we have, whether you know they're, they're following His commandments, they're obeying what He says, they're giving that obedience, they're, uh, you know, in these texts, it talks about the Antichrist. We can measure other folks against these. Now, I don't think that's uh, judgmental. I think that's just, my dad called it being a fruit inspector. He said, well, you know, people say we aren't to judge, but he said, but you can be a fruit inspector. And he said, he'd say, this, son, you say you're an orange tree, but you're bearing apples. Is that why you do what you do now? What's that? Is that why you do what you do now? Maybe so. <laughs> I do literally inspect fruit in my job. And so, but, uh, yeah, my dad literally would say that sometimes, that I'm just being a fruit inspector in here, and you say you're an orange tree, but you're bearing apples, son. Something's wrong. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, some of that was just immaturity of the things that we did. But uh, yeah, does anybody have anything else from those verses right there, 18 through 23?
Okay. Well, let's go on to verses 24 through 29. Would anybody like to read that for me? I'll read it. Um, As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who, is pra- who practices righteousness is born of him. Well, it goes back to, this is, he really hammers home the abide and abides here. And he's giving you some, uh, another contest in there, but he's also giving you the encouragement. And uh, in 24, he talks about, of course, having abiding in you, which you heard from the beginning. If you heard from the beginning, abides in you, you also abide in the Son and in the Father. And that, that's an encouraging that if you just, uh, you know, abide with what you hear. Now, I look back on some of this, and I don't know if any of you guys think this way, but I'm like, how did these guys worship? These are New Testament Christians, and you, you go back during that time. So they didn't have all this written test, text. We know we had, they had the Old Testament, or at least certain scripts from it. We knew that they had synagogues where generally daily they could go and hear readings from that. But I was like, how is it that that you know they can they can worship in this. I think one oral history is something that they were did a better job of of telling than what we do. You know, I, I think sometimes that we underestimate what we can memorize and what we can mm-hmm. can know and keep in our hearts. Mm-hmm. And where I think they were more intentional about that. There was this guy, uh, I'm blanking on his name, but he was a prisoner during World War II in a Japanese prison camp. He did the uh, first bombing over Japan, and then they tried to get from Japan to China to land. Well, they couldn't make it. They had to launch early. Anyway, so they crashed in the, the jungle there uh, in China, and the Japanese army captured them. Anyways, he was put into captivity for three years there, and he, uh, they actually at one point in time, the emperor of Japan told their, the, the Japanese soldiers that they had to treat their prisoners better. So they actually let them have a Bible, one Bible, for all of them. So it, the Bible went to the, uh, the officers first, and then eventually he was an enlisted soldier. It eventually made it to him, and he said, they told me I would have it. I think it was two weeks, he said, or three weeks. Three weeks is what he said he would have it. And he said, so I went to memorize it. And he talked about the books in that three weeks' time that he memorized because he was like, you know, I would came to Christ. I'd heard about him when I was a child, but my circumstances led me to understand that there was a God. And he said, I gave my heart to God. But during that time, he was like, I've got this Bible for three weeks. I'm going to memorize as much as I can during that time. And so he did. But he ended up, uh, ironically, he got to keep the Bible. And so he had it for all that time, but he said, by that point, I'd already packed a lot of this away. And he said, this stuff was just coming out. So when I'm talking to other prisoners, because I put it in my heart, it was coming out. He was abiding in that at that point in time. And it's an amazing story. He later came back to Japan after the war, became a missionary there, and uh, actually befriended the guy that led the attack on Pearl Harbor. And a Japanese soldier, who also became a Christian, and then they, they had a huge impact there. But the point being that because he only thought he had a few weeks with it. He knew the importance of it. But, you know, to me, honestly, if I thought I was going to lose this, I probably would be more intentional about having this in my heart. But, you know, I'm like, well, I've got multiple copies of this. Probably all of us do, right? A few of them need to go blow the dust off over there. But anyway, I just thought that was kind of important to see that it's really abiding is is somewhat being intentional and importance to us. Um, does anybody want to say anything about that? You think I got something on your mind? Oh, I always want to say something. <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, I've already, I mean, I talked about it a little bit ago. I mean, to, to truly understand this section about what it means to abide, I think we have to go back to John chapter 15 and digest what he talks about, you know, Christ being, uh, you know, the vine and us being the branches and really what all that means in the, the sense of abiding uh, through that uh, analogy. So, I mean, 
I think we would have to go back there and just do some deep studies. I mean, I'm yeah. saying we go do that now. Right, right. Uh, but if you if you really want to know, understand, you know, the the abiding. I mean, make a note. Go back and and study John chapter 15. The guy's name was Jacob DeShazer, if y'all want to go look him up. He's a pretty interesting guy. But anyways, the, uh, going to uh, verse 25, and he gives the promise that he has promised us his eternal life. That's the encouragement there. And then in 26, again, he tells us why he's writing this. These things have I written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So he wanted us to know who to look for, what to look for in people. And then um, we talked about abiding, but skipping down to uh, 28... Well, 27 really says God teaches us how to abide in Him. And I really believe that the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, you know, spurns us to desire the truth. And I think through that is why we would seek to, to know more. But in 28, he says, Now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. And when I read that text, I think of it, you know, not being ashamed. I'm like, why would you be ashamed? And I think, though... When it says ashamed there, it's talking about if you weren't living for Christ or you weren't trying to grow in your sanctification and you'd be ashamed of like, Christ is here and what have I done for him? I had a coach who, who was my high school basketball coach our senior year. We won the state championship, but two years later he got cancer. And uh, we all went to see him. We got their team, old team together. And most of us got back to Sam and he was sitting there and he was just talking. He said, you know, guys, he said, I just didn't do enough. And so one of the guys, of course, prompted by that, he said, well, what do you mean you didn't do enough? He said, I didn't do enough for God. He said, I did a lot of things. He said, I took care of my family. And he said, I did a lot of good things. But he said, there were so many people I could have shared with and so much more growth I could have done myself. He was there on his deathbed having those regrets. And I think kind of in verse 28, it's kind of going there when it says, uh, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. It's, It's what are we doing with our lives? What are we doing with our time? Are we intentional with it? You know, and then what are we going to do when we walk out of here today? You know, what are we going to take from this this text? And then the, verse 29 is kind of what I call the capstone of this chapter. And I know when they wrote this, they didn't have the verses and the numbers. But the way this is kind of written, it almost, it almost, it just seems like it fits there. Because in verse 1, it said, My little children, these things are right to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But then in 29 it says, If you know that He is righteous, Jesus Christ, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. So there's kind of our last test there in this chapter. We know that if you practice righteousness, it's because of Him, because He's the one that's righteousness. It's not us, you know. He's the one that that teaches us righteousness. And by, by seeing someone who is righteous in their everyday life, we know that we're born of him. Anybody else have anything to say there? Very good. Well, that's, that's really the, the chapter there. I hope, hopefully you guys got something out of this. I know I did. Of course, I guess that's the commonplace. You, you dive into this and you will learn something from it. But, um, it's right. shocking how bold he is, right? Yeah. This is an early religion, and they, Jesus was near completely rejected by most, and they were looking for the Messiah, but now we know the Messiah had come, but they didn't think he was the Messiah, so they kill him, and then after he's gone, he sends them out, and you know, it's, it's certainly Paul, you know, his mission was to carry it to Gentiles who were definitely not going to be accepted by the Jews and try to convince them that God had died for Jesus had died for everyone not just the Jews, and then he's here saying, if y'all don't accept that, then you're, you're just gone, you're going to go to hell, essentially, is what he's saying. So right. to have that kind of boldness to say something like that, when most of his friends had actually been killed by them, of course, that message, yeah. is pretty courageous. I mean, I think I underappreciate how bold he is for the times, because we're 2,000 years later, I mean, you can say anything in America, nobody cares, but... Like then he could have very easily been killed. I mean, he was exiled anyway. So. Oh, he was put in prison yeah. after that Acts 4.13, him and Peter. <laughs> he, he was put in prison. He's the one that called the son of thunder. John? Wasn't it John? Yeah. Because it was up in Acts 4.13. Yeah. So yeah. 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 Son of Zebedee. That's why I appreciated Acts 4.13. You know, when it says they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men or untrained or whatever you want to say. And they moreover, when they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And then, of course, it says out there, 
we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. It's an outpouring of his heart. It wasn't that he couldn't contain it. He couldn't bottle that, you know. It was what was coming out. And so I think that was why he had that boldness. It was that, you know, he's like, I can't contain this anymore, you know, because I've got an agnostic at, at work and, you know, believes there is a God, but you can't know him. <laughs> and I just sometimes I'm just like, no, you can know him. But at the same time, you know, I, maybe I don't have that boldness yet quite like John had. He was Jesus' best friend, too. Yeah. I mean, we could all be the same way. Yeah, that's interesting the way he writes his his yeah, gospel. He's and he said yeah. the disciple that Jesus loved, he knew God loved him, you know. Yeah. It's just an awesome place to be. To kind of piggyback on that, if we look uh, in Acts chapter 4, um, Peter and John, same John, were arrested. And they get put in prison. And while they're in prison, uh, they begin to, they, uh, they've been threatened with their message, threatened with death because of their message. And they begin to pray. And this is a part of their prayer. Uh, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And then he says, and when, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So a couple of things there. I mean, they didn't pray for safety. That's one of the biggest things that we pray for. And it's not something bad to pray for. We're talking about, you know, people go to, on, a, on a mission trip. Keep them safe. Keep them from getting sick. Keep them from getting capped. You know, whatever it may be. They didn't pray for that. What they pray for? prayed for that boldness that you were just talking about that he, they had to have in this time because there were so many threats against uh, Christianity. Um, and not only that, they were so filled with the Holy Spirit, the, build, the place shook. I mean, what kind of faith is that? You know, that they were so filled with the Holy Spirit that the place just shook. Well, I, I can say my faith is minuscule compared to that. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's hard to hard to fathom sometimes. You know, there's lots of examples in the New Testament. You just oh, there's tons of miracles in both the Old and New Testament, but some of them in the New Testament, you know, just like I don't know, and and, and the things in Matthew, where when they come to get Jesus in the garden and ask him, are you you know Jesus, and he says I am, and it knocks them down. I mean, little things like that. We're just like, wow, that's amazing. He just said I am, and then you know. Powerful stuff that happens there. All right, well, that's really all I've got today. But uh, is there anything you guys want us to pray for? Thanks for listening to the Booker Life Group podcast. I hope you enjoyed that talk on First John chapter 2 from John Green. Next week, we're going to hear from Richard Booker. So check back then, and thanks for listening.